Welcome to From What If to What Next. So delighted to have you here with us. I'm Rob Hopkins, your host, and this podcast is your fortnightly arm around the shoulder of your imagination. I want to congratulate you on being here, on giving your imagination some TLC, some recognition, some love. As Itasha L. Womack says in her amazing book, Afrofuturism, some don't want to imagine it, others are highly invested in the impossibility of it all. We'll return to that in a minute, but I just want to mention that if you enjoy our conversation today, you might consider becoming invested in From What If To What Next, becoming a subscriber at patreon.com slash from what if to what next. You'll get bonus episodes and all manner of other treats, and it really helps us to keep doing this. So do subscribe. You'll be the envy of all your friends. So back to those words, highly invested in the impossibility of it all. They feel especially pertinent when we talk about the climate emergency. I was in Glasgow for COP26 where it felt like many of those, making the decisions that affect all of our lives and the futures of those yet unborn were bereft of imagination and were indeed highly invested in the impossibility of it all. So many of the narratives about climate change focus on the inevitability of collapse, on messages that it's too late, there's nothing we can do. But what if that's not true? What if it was possible through the determined application of the approaches, technologies and changes that already exist, that we already know how to do to really tackle this crisis? Our question for today, therefore, is what if we could end the climate crisis in one generation? It's a big question. So I'm going to need two pretty incredible guests with me. Luckily, that's exactly what I have. Clover Hogan is a 22-year-old climate activist, researcher on eco-anxiety and the founding executive director of Force of Nature, a youth non-profit mobilising mindsets for climate action. Clover has worked alongside the world's leading authorities on sustainability, consulted within the boardrooms of Fortune 500 companies and supported students in over 50 countries to realise their power as change makers. Her TED Talk, What to Do When Climate Change Feels Unstoppable, has been viewed over a million times. She's also director and host of the Force of Nature podcast. And Paul Hawken starts ecological businesses, writes about nature and commerce and consults with heads of state and CEOs on climatic, economic and ecological regeneration. He's appeared on numerous media, including the Today Show, Talk of the Nation, Bill Maher, CBS This Morning and others. And his work has been profiled or featured in hundreds of articles from a myriad of publications. He's written nine books, including six National and New York Times bestsellers, and his latest book, Regeneration, Ending the Climate Crisis in One Generation, was published by Penguin Random House in September 2021, and his sequel to Drawdown. And he's the founder of both Project Drawdown and Project Regeneration. Project Regeneration is the world's largest, most complete listing and network of solutions to the climate crisis. Wow. Welcome, both of you, to From What If to What Next, to our first episode of 2022. Thank you. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. I've admired your work forever, it seems, and um, even met you once. <laughs> you did. <laughs> and I'm so delighted to be here with Clover, who I admire incredibly. Thank you. Yeah, so, so psyched to be here and very excited uh, for today's conversation. Great, great. So, 
As this new year begins, it feels appropriate to start with the com- with the conversation that we're about to have. But I'd like to start first, if I may, by asking you to step into my time machine here for our customary opening time travel. I actually get a lot of people writing to me to ask for the plans of my time machine, and they're a well-guarded secret due to certain modifications that I've made to the original plans. These allow us to actually take more than one person at once. Actually, producer Ben and I took it out for a spin last weekend to check out these modifications because he wanted to see the moment when the first fish left the sea and came onto the land. So I set it for a March afternoon exactly 370 million years ago and we arrived just as our fish was making her way out of the primordial ooze. Actually, it turns out the primordial ooze was far more interesting than a fish who in fairness didn't really do that much, just sort of lay there flapping about a bit. But primordial ooze, we both came back to 2022 feeling like our lives would be greatly enhanced by a bit more primordial ooze around the place. It's amazing stuff. Anyway, so I'll just reset this here to 2030, move the dial there and turn the gravitational sprong to 97%. There we go. So I'd like you to both imagine that you're traveling forwards through time, year on year, until we step out of the time machine into 2030. And this 2030 is not paradise. Climate change hasn't gone away. But we're eight years now into an incredible, concerted, collective effort to respond to it. So all the ideas in regeneration are now being put into action with a degree of ambition and resolve and creativity that was unimaginable in 2022. There's a real sense of shared collective purpose, a strong sense of moving towards something irresistible. I'd love to hear from you in this 2030 that embraced the challenge that you both set it in 2021 and is responding with more courage, resolve and determination than you ever thought it capable of back then. What does it look like and smell like and taste like to live in a world that's on its way to ending the climate crisis in one generation? Clover, maybe we'll start with you. I see a culture of care, a culture of empathy where we feel very connected to one another. Uh, We feel connected to the nature buzzing and humming all around us. And we feel connected to ourselves. And what that includes is feeling a deep connection to the pain of what has already been lost and will continue to be lost. Um, But also ecophilia and love for everything that is left to protect and restore and regenerate. So for me, it's a real investment in in one another, in ourselves, uh, in the future. And it's a culture um, of flourishing and a real pace change in the conversation around the climate crisis from how to outrun the apocalypse to why this moment in time 2030 is the best possible opportunity to rethink so much of how we live and interact with one another and appreciating that the systems we've inherited have not served us for a very, very long time. So why not rethink the clothes that we wear, the food that we eat, how we get around who we interact with, how we communicate with one another, how we love one another. It is really a culture of imagination and what is possible. Beautiful. Thank you, Clover. Paul? 
<clears throat> well, I, I couldn't agree more. I think specifically um, by that time, regenerative agriculture would become the dominant paradigm for farming. Um, the Nestle Corporation will have announced that it had completed the transition of all one million farms in the supply chain to true regenerative agriculture for very pragmatic reasons because they want to exist for another 150 years. And so they start to organize themselves in that way. And the other reason is just the increasing cost of commodity crop yields, you know, and the decreasing productivity of, of farmed out soils, you know, coupled with the turbulent weather patterns, which are going to be more so then than now and so forth, you know, have left farmers with really only with one choice, you know. And the choice really is not so much about carbon, it's about water, it's about rehydrating the planet, it's about the desiccation that's occurring on our ranch-related lands. Um, and we realize that we need to farm in such a way that we can deal with the fact that some years there's no water and some years there's too much water. And that was the water cycle is getting very weird. Um, and so to deal with that unpredictability, there is has to be inbuilt resiliency into our farming practices. But it, what's really beautiful about that on the other side, though, the regenerative produced food has become much more popular than organic food. It includes that. It doesn't dis exclude it, of course. Um, because we know because of David Montgomery and Ann Bickley, who have published their book in, you know, way back in 2022 called What Your Food Ate, we actually realize that the health and nutrition uh, communities and the medical communities have come to understand the link between farming, nutrition, human health, or the lack thereof, depending how you look at it. So that has pushed consumer demand in the, even to greater heights with medical recommendations that they eat such food and so forth. But in there has been a big fight and by 2030 it's been mostly resolved the biggest food fight in the world and that was between the junk food soft drink makers and basically uh, the health community and basically we now in 2030 we tax soft drinks the way we tax alcohol you can drink it if you want but you can't afford to give a six-pack costing $12 to your kids of coke and what is and isn't junk food is still hotly debated you know but we do know that if the ratios of salt sugar and omega-3 fats and saturated fats are a certain level. That is a junk food. But the pushback on there has been from athletic and sports teams all over the world who depended on advertising dollars from crappy food and soft drinks, you know, and basically giving diabetes to children through their advertising. And so that they're resisting that. EVs are no longer talked about, electric vehicles, because they're commonplace. It's like, duh, whatever. They all have ranges of 500 miles or, or, or longer. There's no more lithium-ion batteries. So the Congo is in a state of dep economic depression because of that. And the five-star hotel in Kinshasa has closed down because it was a source of enormous corruption. And the most amazing thing by then is that the great race to create fusion energy was achieved and won. And the first fully operational fusion reactor operated by TAE Technologies out of the University of California in Irvine was uh, successfully done in 2028. And um, the 
prospect of safe and ubiquitous baseload power was not entirely uh, a perfect blessing. The power itself was the cleanest source of electricity in the world, but on the other hand, the prospect of unending supplies of clean energy created a stock market boom for consumer products and a sell-off in wind and solar energy. It was kind of an odd greeting to basically something that's been hoped for for years and years. Clothing today is unrecognizable in material and fiber. I mean, the fibers and in, in fabrics in the vegan leather made from peanut shells and fungi and coconut choir and apple peels and pineapple leaves and recycled milk bottles were, were wearing ways to be in landfills, um, all sewn together in a beautiful way. And there's nowhere plastic bottles because cities all over the world have really imitated the Parisian uh, project called Eau de Paris, which is basically both carbonated and uncarbonated natural water ubiquitously dispensed everywhere in the city and you bring your own bottle, you get your own water, whatever it is and so forth. And at the same time, cities are scrambling to retool their zoning maps and transportation corridors to create 15-minute cities where each person can get everything they need in a 15-minute walk from the city when shutting down streets, more bike lanes, of course, and so forth. And along with that, the overwhelming evidence that forests and vines and parks and trees and greenery in cities are creating a whole new concept of urban renewal <laughs> rather than stadiums and you know office towers and so forth. The show, the data shows significant reductions in anxiety and depression, crime and asthma. You know all throughout the world where this is being achieved. You know and an increase in street life and conviviality and health. And finally, in 2030, uh, Elon Musk will have sent seven crews to Mars to establish a space colony. And then asked to there one of the Mar, I don't call them astronauts, but basically the colonists, you know, uh, asked in an interview, you know, um, she was you know one of the first group of Mars pioneers, and she asked if she, how it was there, and she said, "quote It is hell." We went there thinking we could figure out how to live on another planet, only to realize we didn't know how to live on the planet we came from. And Musk himself remained elusive when questioned as to whether he would or wouldn't take that nine-month trip on the SpaceX rocket. <laughs> yeah, I never saw the appeal of a planet with no trees. It, it, it seems like a very bad idea. Thank you both so much for doing that. That's fantastic. And And Paul, in Regeneration, you wrote... What if holding us back today is not lack of solutions? It is the lack of imagination of what's possible. I'd love to hear from you both your thoughts on that statement and the role of imagination in ending the climate emergency in one generation. Paul. Well, Clover said it accurately at the outset and so forth. We actually have the solutions and we know what to do. I think the best analogy for that is like, supposing you're standing in front of a wall, it's 30 feet high, it's glass smooth and you have to climb it. And there's two people standing there going, shoot, how, I don't see how we can do that. And they're standing, they're looking at it, trying to figure out how to do it. One of the persons looks to the right and sees that actually the wall doesn't extend infinitely. It just ends right over there. So, you know, we could walk around it. And so much of the, so much of the idea that it's not achievable is because we assume that what is here now must be maintained and sustained uh, as it is. And we're trying to think: how can we stay the way we are, and you know, basically um, reimagine. Uh, 
not just reimagine, but actually confront the climate crisis in such a way that it's ameliorated in a, a consistent way over the next three decades. And what we don't look at is the underlying assumptions that inform that question, that inform that doubt. Um, and that is a juggernaut economy that's basically taking life. I mean, we all want to live in a livable planet, and there is sort of, I think, this dub moment where you say, well, you can't live on a livable planet if every economic sector is removing life from the planet. And it's like, huh? And then you go, well, wait a minute. That doesn't make sense at all. And once you understand that, that, that we are kind of have blinders on in terms of what we need to do and what is possible in the context of what we're doing. Let's look at the context of what we're doing because we do know how to do this. Clover, what's your thoughts on that, the role of imagination here? I feel that there is a crisis in imagination when it comes to the climate crisis. And I think this is in part because there has been such a push and focus on ringing the alarm bells um, because it, it felt like for a long time society has kind of been sleepwalking is even as the you know science tells us that we're hurtling toward this cliff of climate collapse and I think the response to that was okay we need to we need to wake people up through fear and we need to make the climate apocalypse very present and pertinent in everyone's minds. And I think we see that manifesting um, in, in quite a scary way, I think, particularly in the consciousness of my generation and, and the young people who have grown up, you know, with the fiery headlines. I've spoken to business leaders and, and asked them about the future that they're inheriting. And it's very much something of a kind of techno-utopia of, you know, flying cars in a world where deadly diseases are eradicated. And yet I've asked eight and nine-year-olds that same question. And the future that they've described to me is something out of a dystopian blockbuster of empty supermarket shelves and cities underwater, you know, the kind of place that no one wants to find waiting for them when they grow up. And I think, you know, it, it's when we close our eyes and think climate change or even type those words into Google, it, it's hard to imagine any kind of alternative. And what we really need to do at this point is sit in the difficult emotions that are naturally brought up by the climate crisis and sit in the very normal fear of inheriting this huge, so often overwhelming problem, but also be willing to hold the tension between that feeling, which does wake us up, that does spark the anxiety and say, yes, you know, ring the internal alarm bells, we are facing emergency. And at the same time, be able to hold the space for that better, brighter future that is possible. And again, not just do that from a romanticized lens of the world that could be possible, but actually realize where that world already exists today. You know, what are those kind of pockets of the future in the present? And a number of the climate solutions are kind of talked about as these far off kind of technologies that don't address the root of the crisis. Elon Musk, <laughs> to bring him back into the picture, he tweeted earlier this year that he'd be starting a, a prize fund of 100 million US dollars for the best carbon capture technology, as if trees didn't exist. And, and US climate envoy John Kerry said that 
you know, 50% of the technologies needed to achieve net zero in America have not yet been invented. So there's this real othering that happens of, again, this is a problem we can fix in the future and one that's only fixable through technology. But, you know, those technologies are going to be nothing if we don't address the root of the crisis, which is, you know, an economic system that values a tree more when it's dead than alive, an economic system that commodifies nature, a system that has, you know, systematically sacrificed frontline communities as well. And, you know, a culture where we have allowed ourselves to become divorced from the natural world and equally for there to be this fragmentation between quote unquote environmental and, you know, social justice issues. So for me, it's it's kind of escaping the kind of techno-utopian solutions to to Paul's point to really appreciate what are all of the incredible nature-based regenerative solutions that already exist here today. Um, We don't have a shortage of the resources or ingenuity or technology, but there is a shortage of the political will of the mass mobilization to really get behind these solutions um, and make them a reality. And I guess the question in in the minds of many people who've been listening to this is, is it too late? And regeneration is defiant that it isn't. But given what we know about the science and how fast things are moving, I wonder what your thoughts are, what your response would be to the people who've who've signed into this podcast thinking, ah, well, it's, it's too late. Uh, Clover. It's an unhelpful binary. <laughs> because what is too late, right? Like, it, it's already too late for, you know, the first mammal off the coast of Australia on a tiny island to go to go extinct, the first ever mammal to go extinct, a little marsupial because of rising sea levels, right? It's already too late for a lot of frontline communities. It's already too late for the folks who are going to lose their homes because of the, the global heating that is already locked in. But, you know, we're talking the difference between 1.5 degrees warming, which is a critical tipping point, and 2.4 degrees um, and beyond, right? You know, current global commitments put us on track for 2.4 degrees. That's not action. That's just what governments are saying that they're going to do. Um, So, you know, I think it's a really relative term. And I think we have to be able to sit in that discomfort of, yes, it is already too late for a number of species, for certain communities. And, but, but for me, that is that is an empowered knowing because it's not trying to shy away from those difficult emotions. It's it's appreciating that, yes, many of the conversations we're happening now should have happened, you know, decades before I was born when when was first scientific knowledge of the climate crisis. But there is so much left to fight for. Um, and without romanticizing, you know, the opportunity that the climate crisis presents, there is this reality that climate crisis aside, you know, the, the world that we have inherited um, is deeply unequal and does not serve many, many people. And in fact, you know, I, I feel very privileged that for one, I get to do activism and show up every day without risk to my life, which is not a reality for a lot of frontline activists around the world, um, but also that I get to be alive at this moment in history when there is still so much to fight for and when we you know can leave our fingerprints on on those solutions and 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 actively create a world that we do want to pass on to future generations so for me it, it's not really worth even entertaining that sentence of is it too late or not right um but you know of course it is and it's for that reason that we have to throw everything in our power behind the solutions mm. i love that term empowered knowing that was beautiful mm. thank you uh, uh paul well, the it's interesting that it's too late. I mean, uh, we're, we're only here for a short time, you know, relative to 
the life of the earth. So how do we want to live while we're here? We do know what the science is. The science is overwhelming. It's really well done. It's extraordinary. And it's become better and better in terms of its predictive capacity uh, as to what's going to happen going forward and when we get warming. That being said, the, the paralysis of analysis here, you know, in terms of going over and over and over again, the... Um, the predictions and basically the probabilities of what's going to go wrong and when and to whom and how it will go wrong and it's going wronger faster than we thought it was and we just want to do a little update with you um, is good science and really, really bad neuroscience. Uh, that is to say, it absolutely flattens people and then go, fuck, excuse my French here, I should just check that one out. Darn, um, you know, uh, that, you know, uh, there's nothing I can do. It, it, it does the opposite of what's required and what's needed. And actually what is happening too, I want to say. And we have to look at that from the point of view is like, thank science, really, really thank the scientists who have come together all over for 50 years and presented more and more uh, accurate data about what's happening the impacts and the effects of it and so forth. At the same time, we have to say thank you and got it. In other words, thank you, got it. Now, what are we going to do? Let's go act as opposed to being hopped, you know, psychologically with this sense of doom and carrying it with us like a cloth, something uh, which does not inspire people. It doesn't bring us together. And the fact is that regeneration is about possibility. The possibilities here are extraordinary. And to the frontline communities and those, you know, even the World Bank, I mean, the technically 4.3 billion people who live in impoverished conditions, there's more than that, much more than that, I must say. Five, six, you know, I mean, it is the majority of human beings on this planet are living in deprivation, living lives that do not make sense, you know, to them when somebody talks about future existential threat. They're saying, raising their hands, saying, this morning is an existential threat. Every day is an existential threat. And we have to understand that if we didn't have a climatologist alive, if we didn't understand uh, uh, extreme weather and the causes of it, you know, or the amplification of it by global warming, we would want to do every single one of the solutions that address global warming because they have such extraordinary cascading beneficial impacts on human beings everywhere everywhere and you know pure water education you know better food stability you know food insecurity goes to food security warmth housing clothing and we're still siloing it just as clover mentioned with john Kerry and others and so forth thinking and bill gates you know that we're going to fix it in this technoid mind of theirs and so forth which is fine bring on the technology it's not that we don't want great technologies but the idea that somehow is coming soon to a neighborhood near you is another way to create paralysis for people which is i hope they do it instead of understanding that we are doing it not enough we but we are and we do know what to do and the tools and the means and the solutions and the techniques and the practices are at hand and it's really more of a question of you know sharing that connecting that you know amplifying it, growing it and uh, uh, you've done an amazing job in the transitions network in, in the UK I mean I yesterday I was at a one-day seminar and I, I gave it as an example I said well give me an example 
I said, well, look what Rob and everybody's done there for the last decade or more. I mean, so we do know we do know how to do that as well, you know. And so the the solutions to uh, the climate crisis are ultimately all in place in region, local, city, municipal, community, neighborhood. They're not going to happen in Glasgow or Cairo next year. It never will because those people who go to COP are basically employees with all due respect to the minister, the delegates, and the 500 delegates that were there from the fossil fuel industry. Come on, 500 delegates in the blue zone from the fossil fuel industry? It's like huh who is the delegates for the children indigenous people for women for you know i mean the frontline communities i didn't see those delegates in the blue zone and so forth so if you have employees trying to figure out what to do about the future of humankind in a capital city and five-star hotels and basically whose job is to be good employees which is to protect the interest of the entities they represent whether they be countries or corporations it's guaranteed not to have an, uh, an outcome that's going to make sense. But I think we have to stop looking for those mega type of meetings and solutions and so forth as a source that's not the source of our solutions. Mm. And so to build on that, you know, after a COP that was perceived by most people as being somewhere between a failure and nowhere as near as good as it needed to be. What's your sense of what our activism needs to look like going forward from here? What are the best routes open to give us the outcomes that you suggest in the book and to give those up to give those solutions the best chance of success? What where where should we best be putting our energy and our efforts in the next say 5 years, Paul? Well, where we are uh, and where we don't see, because there are some new mega, you know, possible technology or this or that, as John Kerry said, instead of, it is happening in cities, it's happening in the countryside, it's happening with food localization, it's happening everywhere in the world, but it's happening on a level that's considered, quote, quote, small. And so we overlook the small in favor of the large. And furthermore, we have media that pounds us with stories that light up our amygdala because there's a 10 to 1 ratio in the brain to threat versus opportunity or possibility and so forth. So we're flooded with stories, as I said, about the probability of what's going wrong, and further, but we don't actually see what is going on. And the regeneration movement is a burgeoning movement worldwide. I mean, it, it is growing everywhere because people have realized that they have to, I mean, not take things into their own hands, but they have the capability to change what needs to be changed, where they are, with the, doing the best they have. Sometimes they're underfunded, sometimes they, they're, they're, they're not supported, sometimes there's political resistance. Of course, there's always going to be that because of moneyed interests and so forth. But what I see is a world that is um, uh, growing in its efforts and its activism. I think we sometimes think of activism as 10 million people marching led by Greta Thunberg. Okay, that's wonderful. It really is. I'm not in any way deprecating that. I'm just saying that's only one type of activism. We can't just say that is activism when it makes the headlines. The most important activism is what we're not seeing. It's under the radar. Thank you. Uh, Clover? For me, activism is being able to challenge the status quo. And the status quo is for all of us different, right? I mean, we all have kind of cultural narratives that we subscribe to in collective. 
but then we also have our own stories that we kind of hold to be true running internally. And I think to, to Paul's point, you know, for me growing up, when I first declared myself an environmentalist, I was like, oh, cool. So I either need to ride a Zodiac into the path of a whaling ship or go and become a climate scientist in the Arctic. And age 11, I quickly realized that I was neither brave nor scientific enough to do either of those things. Um, but I was hugely inspired by journalists and, and people who were often putting their lives on the line to you know, tell stories from the front line of, of what was happening. And for me, that was where I found my power very quickly. I loved communicating. I loved storytelling. I loved, you know, this idea of how do you inspire hearts and minds and, and catalyze people to take action. So for me, activism wasn't that kind of banner blazing in the street. And I think for all of us, you know, I want to see a world where activist is part of every title and job description. And I think we've seen how nonviolent direct action is such a tremendous catalyst for change. You know, at COP, I truly did not feel that hope, power or determination in those historic corridors of power. Um, I felt it in the street and, and seeing what an intersectional movement it was as well. You know, there were, there were the youth strikes for climate on the Friday and then on the Saturday, it was the general global climate protest. And, and you had, you know, folks from Scottish independence, you had doctors for climate action, you had Extinction Rebellion, you had the Women's March and the Women's Movement, and, and you had the young people, you know, at the heart and centre. And for me, that was so incredibly inspiring. And at the same time, I realized, oh, wow, we each need to carry this energy back into how we show up every single day. And I was chatting to a group of business leaders recently, and there was someone um, from the mining industry, and, and they kind of asked me somewhat sheepishly, um, they said, oh, well, do you think I can be an activist? And I was like, this isn't a question of can you, it's you absolutely must, right? We need everyone in, in business, in politics, in school, in the education system, putting up their hands and say, you know, I, I'm not going to choose to subscribe to the status quo. I'm going to choose to challenge it. And I think that the uncomfortable thing about this and, and perhaps the, the greatest discomfort I've seen in business is business leaders being willing to call one another out for a bad practice. I think there's more rhetoric around general responsibility, general accountability. But do you truly have business leaders pointing and saying, well, you know, that's actually really bad behavior because, you know, we have no more time for niceties, right? We need to be willing to say, actually, no, that is not acceptable, right? And I'm also going to hold myself to those same principles and standards. And, and from that place of humility, recognize how I'm part of the problem. And maybe that's one of the biggest barriers to more people engaging in environmentalism is it can seem very kind of Puritan, right? It's like, unless you're doing everything perfectly, um, then you can't be part of this conversation, right? And, and something that I've started doing is really acknowledging and speaking to how I'm an inconsistent activist, because in acknowledging my vulnerabilities, my blind spots, how I'm continually trying to challenge my own mindset as I actively challenge those in a more incumbent arena, um, I'm able to also open those kind of doorways to people saying, okay, well, maybe I don't recycle perfectly, or maybe I'm not plant-based, but that doesn't mean then that I'm excluded from, from partaking in this. So for me, the, the short answer is we need everyone putting their hands up and saying, yes, I'm an activist. So Clover, you've written and spoken often really movingly about eco-anxiety. 
if we were to live through the time that ended the climate crisis in one generation, when we look back on that time, how might we see our relationship to eco-anxiety? Did it paralyse us, inspire us, block us, motivate us? And how can we build a good relationship with it? I always say to people, for me, eco-anxiety really is a sign that you have a pulse and that you're paying attention. Uh, but how, how, can we, how can we build a good relationship with it? I think I might just steal that definition from you because that pretty much encapsulates it. Um, you know, I, I don't want my eco-anxiety to go anywhere. Um, I think, it, as you said, it is proof that we are awake to the issues. And for a long time, I really felt that that eco-anxiety was a weakness. I thought in order to show up and do this work every day, which is so heavy and that does you know, create those days where it, it feels too much to get out of bed and those moments where you just want to switch it all off and watch some trashy TV. I think for a long time, I, I almost felt that that eco-anxiety was a weakness and I could only show up as an activist if I, if I tethered myself really, you know, strongly to the feelings of hope and, and inspiration and, and kind of what my message became known for. You know, I, I often heard, oh, you make me feel so much better. And I'm like, well, should we actually feel better? You know, and I think that the turning point for me, I suppose, was, you know, having grown up in a bubble of climate privilege where the climate crisis was something that I read about in articles and watched in documentaries. It wasn't real and it wasn't a real cause of loss beyond the deep pain that I felt from seeing it from afar. And that changed uh, in 2019 during the fires back home in Australia. And for the first time, the pain was completely inescapable. You know, I would, I would go on social media and I'd read the headlines. I'd watch the videos of people throwing themselves into these fires to try and rescue these singed koalas and, and kangaroos. And I'd go on Instagram and see friends, you know, videos of them standing on the roofs of their homes, holding hoses, trying to beak, beat back the, the embers. And I went through grief and loss because for the first time the climate crisis was the reason why I was losing my culture, my my home, um, the very places that made me an environmentalist from this deep love for nature were suddenly gone, you know, they'd gone up in flames. And it was with that that I realized that I could no longer run away from the eco-anxiety, but it also showed me the enormous gift that it brought me. And I realized that I had to travel through that pain to come out the other side and, and be able to show up and, and do the work and, and feel empowered. So for me, I think if we look back on this moment in time, we're going to realize to your point, Rob, that those who were able to vocalize that eco-anxiety and speak to the pain were the most switched on in society. In the future, we'll have a much better relationship to those difficult emotions so that in the context of a culture that conditions us not to care, rather than feeling shut down by those feelings, we can feel truly empowered by them and mixed in, in that smoothie of emotions of anxiety and anger and fear and paralysis. We can also feel the imagination, the hope, the curiosity, the passion and the love and recognize that that anxiety is, you know, an expression of that deep love that we have for the natural world, for our community and, and for one another. Yeah, beautifully put. I think it's the people who don't experience eco-anxiety, the ones that we really need to worry about, really. Um, thank you. Uh, uh, Paul, what's your thoughts on that? 
Well, I agree with your last statement, absolutely. I've said the same thing in polls that uh, Clover has done and others have done shows 70% of whatever you want to classify that young cohort, 16 to 22, 16 to 24, whatever. Almost everywhere in the world, 70% uh, feel anxiety or panic or fear or almost half question whether they should have children, etc. I mean, what an interesting thing to be born into a world and then to, you know, rationally really ask yourself, is that the responsible thing to do to bring in a child into this world? And I've always wondered about the other 30%, like, where the heck are they, you know? <laughs> I mean, because um, that's right. The anxiety is absolutely Correct. And anxiety is a form of stress. It's very stressful to feel anxiety. And we have a culture that does everything it can possibly do to make people not feel, actually, not feel much at all. Um, and to me, stress is this profound and basic human you know, emotion. And it's telling us to do one thing, act. It's not something we should just keep with to ourselves. And there is this um, wonderful work by uh, Stanford. What he's pointing out is that we have this belief that our beliefs change our actions. In other words, if we believe something, then we do things differently in the world. And he says and points out it's the opposite. It's our actions change our beliefs. And so if we take that stress and act, even if we're carrying with that a sense of, you know, it's too late or, uh, you know, I'm not, what I'm doing isn't sufficient to the task at hand or whatever, it, you know, all those kind of worries and doubts, anxieties and so forth. But we begin to act. Act changes us. It changes how we see the world, what we believe, and what is fabulous about it, it changes other people too. We are changed by people's actions. And not just the action itself, but by the activity of the action. In other words, their involvement, their connection, what they're doing, their enthusiasm, the way they come together. So we have to see this, the anxiety, as, 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 in a sense, a gift. I mean, the way I say it sometimes is, you know, we're being homeschooled by our mother, the planet. This is homeschooling. And these are lessons. And you know, lesson number one, plan, you know, lesson plan number one is get in alignment with biology. Well, part of that is to get in line with each other and to have that sense of commonality. And if it's not there around you, start to act. And the dream of every cell in our body is to become two cells. <laughs> That's the dream of every cell. And we have 31 trillion of them in our body and they're regenerating every single second, nanosecond, or we wouldn't be listening to each other right now. So we are a walking, talking protoplasm of regeneration. That's who we are. And it is core to our being. It's core to the human heart. It's core to our purpose on life and so forth to care. We care. We really do. And even the most deluded person in some ways, you know, has areas in their life where they care, but most of us aren't deluded. We get it. And <clears throat> that care is just this beautiful 
connectedness to life itself because life creates the conditions for life and we're life. And when we get overwhelmed uh, by what to do and what should I do and I feel helpless and all that sort of stuff, it's the person next to us that we know in our neighborhood or school or class or church or synagogue or company, wherever it is, who's doing something and is lit up. And that person is going, wow, that person is really doing something. And the thing I noticed, and I don't know if you guys are noticing it too, but you know, after I did Drawdown, I did about 128 speeches in, in, in 22 months. And the thing that came up again and again, and I still hear it to this day, people say, what should I do? It's so interesting. I mean, 98% of humanity isn't doing anything at all. Nothing. Then we have to ask ourselves why. And the why goes right back to how what Clover pointed out right at the outset, which is how we've communicated. We've communicated it in such a way that even those who understand the mechanism and the causes of global warming are paralyzed and don't do anything. And they think if they watch a documentary on Netflix on you know, global warming, they've done something. The brain tells them that they've done something and so forth. Um, and they've done nothing at all and so forth. So it's, it sounds like you know, sort of Hans Brinker at the dike or something, you know, a futile thing just to be an individual or a small group and start doing things where you are, how you, uh, in, in, in ways that you understand that you can do something uh, as if it's futile or it's not sufficient to the task. And it is, it is, it's where all change originates. And that's why I love what Force of Nature, what, what Clover's doing, because it is inculcating that sense of possibility and also directedness uh, in terms of doing acting and so let's go that's my attitude is like you know the, the wendell berry quote be joyous though you've considered all the facts okay got it thank you now we're human beings i'm going to spend the rest of my life whether it's 10 years or 50 years and i'm not going to go around you know feeling like i got the wrong end of the stick yeah, I was on a I was on a panel recently, and there was an older guest on the panel who was great. And at the end, somebody there was a question, you know, what should everybody do? And he just said, "Be useful." Mm. I thought it was such great advice. Mm. Be useful. Do something mm -hmm. useful. Don't do something that's like some mad kind of ego trip thing that you want to do. Just be useful. So, so cop. 26 was really, I think quite rightly, a lot of it derided by activists at the time as being a festival of greenwash. And there was an awful lot of greenwash on display. Every company was lining up to say, hey, we're part of the solution because we're doing this, that and the other. And in the book Regeneration, Paul, you offer a really good checklist against which to evaluate any proposed solutions, which I found really, really useful. And I wondered, Paul, if you might share some of those with us and then Clover if there was any that you'd like to add to that list. I was asked by uh, a network of, of impact investors that uh, represent about $1.5 trillion of capital. And, um, and they wanted to shift to regeneration, you know, I mean, as a um, defining characteristic of what impact investing is. And, and he said, can you send me some, you know, the principles of regeneration? I thought, God, principles? And I said, well, we can't do that, but I can send you guidelines in a sense. And the first one is, does the action we take create more life or reduce it? It's very simple. Are we creating life or are we basically degrading it uh, or killing it? And that goes to the second one, which is really about an economic one. Are we healing the future or stealing it? 
because if you're taking the life of the planet away and then turning into capital and stock and you know money uh, <clears throat> that is stealth that is robbing the future and we see it everywhere we see it in those headlines in 2019 in australia and the burn and now uh last this year you know in siberia and canada united states and oregon california and greece and spain you know fires in many cases they can't even be put out at all they have to just burn themselves out and so forth and so that is number two number three is does it enhance human well-being or diminish it uh, fourth, does it prevent disease or does it profit from disease? And we have a sick care industry that profits from disease and it doesn't work on upstream to create health and vibrancy. Does it create livelihoods or eliminate them? Does it restore land or does it degrade the land? Does it increase global warming or decrease it? But does it serve human needs or does it create and manufacture human wants that is the difference between d and regeneration does it reduce poverty does it expand it does it promote fundamental human rights or deny them does it provide workers with dignity or does it demean them and in short i mean this is the the guidelines of, to measure to look at what we do as to whether it's extractive or regenerative beautiful thank you is there anything you'd add to that clover I'm tempted to do the spaghetti on the wall um, response to this, but I'm actually going to bring this back to something more practical, simply because we've gone through an exercise as force of nature, which is now a 10 person team of really reflecting deeply on what is the world that we want to create. Um, what is the world that we're communicating to the business leaders that we work with, the students, the policymakers? Um, and critically, how do we practically model that <laughs> inside of our organization? Um, because it's not enough, you know, to just preach and use words. We really want to think about how do we structure these values and these concepts into every part of um, what we do. So I'm going to do something that I, I never do in speaking engagements, which I actually read from a list. But we, we basically identified these five core values for how we're showing up in the world. The first one is around courage and vulnerability. I think this is particularly difficult for a lot of business leaders, but it is to acknowledge that we don't always have the answers. And it also invites us to sit in difficult emotions, sit in that uncertainty, and in doing so, give others license to do the same. The thing that really struck me at COP is that you know, you have all these thousands of people congregating in what is a very sanitized environment. It's all white walls. There is none of the nature present within those white walls, the very nature that we're there fighting for and, and championing, right? And, and with that, you have a lot of people kind of wearing their titles and their positions and their corporate obligations. And, and you don't always give one another license to be human. So that was our, our first one is real, real courage and invulnerability, courage in, in being human. Um, the second to Paul's point was around action beyond intention. So it's really a call to translate our thoughts and feelings and beliefs into meaningful action. And exactly to that point to recognize that, you know, action does not necessarily follow intention, right? And 
we need to show up and do the work as much as we talk about it. Um, the third is constructive disruption. And I think we recognize that the next couple of decades and beyond is going to be a period of enormous, enormous disruption. And so many of the stories that we hold to be true about the world around us, about ourselves in that context, will need to transform. And we need to be willing to once again sit in that messiness and, and to in challenging the stories around us, be really willing to challenge ourselves. The fourth is around collaboration. Um, it's something that I see as a real challenge and, and barrier working in the sustainability environmental and, and social impact spaces. Often when you show up to, to climate conferences and things, and I'm not sure if you've had this experience, Paul, but there's this kind of sense of, you know, you need to, to show up and, and give your elevator pitch of why yours is the, you know, silver bullet climate solution. Um, and there's this failure to recognize that we need all of us, right? And we need all of it. And there's no right way to do activism, right? Uh, we really, really need to embrace collaboration in lifting one another up in recognizing great solutions and thinking about how we fulfill a niche within an ecosystem. But, you know, in the nature of an ecosystem, how to ensure that we have a reciprocal relationship with those around us. And the final value, which I think you'll be pleased to hear, uh, Paul, is around championing regeneration. Um, and for us, that means, you know, acting always from a place of fairness, of reciprocity, of connectedness to nature, community, and ourselves. And I think most critically, shifting from a mindset of do less harm to do more good. And this is one of the biggest uh, challenges and barriers and belief that I see, particularly in companies, is this thinking that we're going to solve the climate crisis with the same incremental thinking and the same people who created it, right? And, and we can fix this by continuing to treat sustainability as an afterthought, as a kind of bureaucratic tick boxing activity, when in fact, we need to work back from the problems. We need to say, what does a, a sustainable, regenerative world look like? Um, and what does that mean for where we stand today in terms of how we need to bridge from where we stand today to where we need to be tomorrow. Um, and that, you know, requires a radical reframe. It, it means that we must adopt that transformative thinking and exactly what you're achieving here, Robin, in encouraging us to go to that place. And it also invites in all of the opportunity and everything else. So it's not from a place of, of fear and risk, um, but actually how do we totally need to rethink the way that we create value in society and the way that we show up and solve problems. Beautiful. Thank you so much. And the, the assumption behind this episode has been that it's possible just that we could still end the climate crisis in one generation. So my last question, therefore, is what would you suggest to people listening to this as the most skillful one thing they could do starting today to actually begin to bring this about? This episode will go out at the very beginning of January 2022, maybe a New Year's resolution people might like to adopt of something that they're going to change or do differently. Clover, what would you suggest to, to somebody for that? I feel that Paul notoriously dislikes this question because <laughs> yeah, exactly. you definitely get asked a lot in the sustainability, what is the one thing that I can do right? And I think often uh, the conversation uh, definitely gets hijacked into, well, the reusable coffee cups and turning off the lights and not buying fast fashion is for me, 
I think one of the, the biggest reasons we feel paralyzed is from the sense of overwhelm, right? And I see that a lot in young people, the sense of you go on Instagram and you're reading on this, you're on this constant kind of pulse of all the problems that are happening everywhere. And by the nature of global media, they're not problems that you feel are brushing at your elbows that you can wrap your hands around in your local community. Often there are these big geopolitical problems that feel too enormous and, and too complex to address. So the one very simple piece of advice that I give everyone that I speak to is to really find impact through focus. And, and rather than just asking, what can I do? Thinking, what is that problem that does ignite a fire in my belly? Whether that is food waste or ensuring that girls have access to education or, you know, conserving tropical forests. I mean, reading regeneration would be a great place to start because you have this incredible menu of solutions that work, right? But really tune into that one problem and then think with that problem in mind about the skills and gifts that we all do carry within us that you can show up um, to solve that issue. And, and again, that invites the bigger thinking rather than how do I tinker around the edges of my own life um, to how can I really show up in service of a bigger mission, a bigger problem. Beautiful. Thank you. Paul, what would be your thought on that? Uh, my thought is to remove the word should completely, because if you're acting from that point of view, you're acting out of guilt or, you know, sense of obligation, or if I don't do this, then I'm a failure. I'm not part of, you know, all that sort of stuff. Get rid of that completely. The thing that Clever said is absolutely spot on, which is that the, the most important thing you can do, the one most important thing you can do is the, the thing that lights you up. And what I recommend to people is to go to Nexus on the regeneration.org uh, website and look at all the challenges, like the boreal forest and plastic is a challenge, those aren't solutions, and the 130 challenges and all the solutions there, and just take them in. Take them in and, and then find the one where you just perk up and go, gosh, I studied that in school, I love that, I, I, I wish I hadn't taken this job over here, I wish I had stayed with it, or I want to know more about it, or I love being outside, or I love working with people, or whatever it is, you find that thing where you start to have resonance. And it's not like you're solving something so much as it's you're coming alive. And from where you are right now, and the dread that you may feel, or the fear you may uh, sense, you know, the anxiety that is a constant. And there, all of a sudden, things line up, you know, and um, regenerating the world and bringing the world back to life brings us back to life. So let's go the opposite. Bringing ourselves back to life is connecting to that activity, that practice, that technique, that connection, basically, that does that and so forth. And so that's what you should do. It doesn't mean you will ignore the daily tasks, you know, of not of food waste and recycling and being conscious about, you know, your purchases, clothing, whatever it is. You know that. You'll do that as well. But you will be organizing yourself and your life around something where you want to wake up and you're so happy to be awake to do that. Nobody wakes up in the world to say, I just can't wait to mitigate today. You know what I mean? <laughs> And, and so that's the thing you're looking for. And you don't have to worry about you're not doing X or Y or Z. Somebody else is going to do that. Somebody else is lit up about those things. Just take care of the thing that lights you up.
Beautiful, beautiful. Wow, you've both been amazing. Thank you so, so, so much. And uh, this has been our first podcast of 2022, and I set a very, very high bar for everything that will follow after it. So, Paul, Clover, thank you so much for joining me here today. Thank you so much. Rob, thank you. It's a pleasure. My thanks to Clover and to Paul, to you for listening, and we hope subscribing, and to Ben Adicott for his editorial audio spellmaking, and we will see you next time. Mm-hmm.